So uh, I'm a little stiff this morning from all that walking, so uh, you, you'll beg with me a little bit. Uh, thank you for Pastor Nick preaching last Sunday. I really appreciated his availability as he was coming up and looking for housing. I trust that it was a wonderful opportunity for you to uh, get a, a dose of what you'll be getting uh, starting on June 20th, uh, every Sunday from him. And um, we were down visiting my in-laws, uh, making one of those, uh, 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 what do they call those, sandwich generation type of visits that we have uh, uh, with our elderly parents down in Peoria. Had a wonderful time visiting with them and was in Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria on Sunday, worshiping with that congregation. If you remember, the last time I was here, we talked about what is an elder to be. And we talked about the, the unexceptional, uh, and I like that word, unexceptional character qualities that are supposed to mark a leader in our church. And I say that is unexceptional because there's nothing that, uh, that Paul has admonished Titus and Timothy to look for in the men that would lead his fellowship. There's nothing that's, uh, that isn't also asked for of believers in general. There's nothing there except for one quality, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but there's nothing there that would call them out and mark them as, as a different kind of Christian. They're not a super Christian. They're not to be elevated uh, into this distinction that is so often made between clergy and laity. They're not different in that regard. They're different only by degree and not by kind. They're the kind of men that, are, that, that their character and integrity has bubbled up from the inside <clears throat> so that you can see it on the outside. And that is what Paul is admonishing Timothy to do, is to make sure that when you choose men, whatever way you choose men, uh, to lead your church, that it's supposed to be, these character qualities are supposed to be evident in their life. Because God is not so much interested in with externals. He's not so much interested with externals insofar as it starts with externals. God is very much interested in what begins in the heart. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it says that salvation begins in the heart. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Jesus is preeminently interested in the heart. He's talking about the love of God is rooted in the heart. The Lord, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, your soul, your mind, and your being. He's also interested in the fact that sanctification is a process that starts in the heart. In order, uh, it says this, my purpose is that they may be encouraged where? In the heart of a person and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ, in whom all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge exist. Leadership is motivated by the heart. Last week we started off by saying this, that here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone desires where or sets what? His heart and desires on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Leadership is begun in the heart. It's a stirring from within that bubbles up and out into the life of a leader. God knows and examines the heart 
Remember when Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel, he was going through all of the sons of, uh, uh, and he found the one, the, there was none there that pleased him, and finally they called for David, who was out tending the flock. And he came in and he said, because the Lord sees the heart that this is the man. It's not the outward appearance that makes the difference. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind and renew, uh, reward a man for his, uh, 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 according to his conduct. He looks at the heart. The second thing I want to I preface my start with this morning is that God gifts people. Now I want you in three passages that enumerate all the, the giftedness that God gives to the church uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to look at these three passages and I want you to see the focus that there is on leadership. In Romans 12 and the following verses, there's prophesying. Now in, 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 the, in the New Testament of understanding, we're not looking at prophecy in terms of being able to foretell particular events, although that's not precluded in the New Testament. But generally speaking, prophecy is to foretell God's word in such a way that he, uh, that he will be able to say that if you obey and comply and, you, and love the Lord your God, then these things will happen in your life. There's teaching and there's leading in Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians, there's prophets, teachers, and administration. And in Ephesians, there's prophets and the pastor-teacher. So there's a very strong emphasis on the spiritual gifting of leadership in order for the church to be able to accomplish its ministry. And then finally, the last quality that Paul was admonishing Timothy and Titus to look for was their, their, their skill and ability and their, uh, of their ability to teach. One of the things that calls a leader specifically uh, to a leadership position is character. Character that is visible to all, but not character that's separate from you all, but character that's visible to you all. But the one quality that he calls us to is the ability to teach. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's, this, is, this is a good question. I, I looked at this after I had written it and sent it off to the, uh, the people up in the booth. This is not, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a question that says this. Uh, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not wrong because it's a good question to ask, or it's not a bad question to ask. It's wrong because it's an incomplete question to ask. You don't want to ask prospective candidates for eldership, do you agree with High Point's doctrinal statement? Now that's not a bad question. There, here's where I, I have to amend my, the way I phrased it. It's not a bad question to ask this. Do you agree? But the real question is this, do you understand High Point's doctrinal position and can you clearly explain it to other people? That's really the question that needs to be asked of prospective candidates. Can you understand it? Do you understand it? And do you have a desire to teach it? That's really what the doctrinal, uh, that's what really elders are called to do in a church is not so much to agree with it, but they have to understand it so that when they see error, they are able to point it out and make a change. You see, they have to be able to explain it to other people. Now, what is an elder to be is a very important question. But the next question I'm going to ask you is, what does an elder do? 
What does an elder do? And you see, ladies and gentlemen, we get a clue from what an elder is to do by examining the various vocabulary words that Paul and others use to describe or to identify a leader in the church. So let's take a look at the first grouping of words uh, that we're going to do. We're going to look at the word overseer. Overseer. It's the uh, a Greek word episkopos. And you, you understand sometimes where we get our, uh, some of our denominational labels uh, from uh, because one of the words, uh, ways in which that word is translated in the New Testament era was the word bishop. Now, it didn't mean that there was this hierarchy of, of, uh, of, of um, leadership across the, uh, an area. We have to understand that in the New Testament church, likely there was uh, clusters of house churches that each had a pastor, teacher, elder that was responsible. And generally speaking, there's a way of looking at it. There was one set of elders that were responsible for a citywide network of house churches, and this person would have oversight over the other leaders in that area. And so they would oftentimes give that name of the word, that overseer, which is a word for bishop, one of the words that we, we use. And it means to look out for or watch over, that is a position, the responsibility of which is to watch over the church. They look out over the church. And so one of the things that we see in this overseer in 1 Timothy uh, 3, 1 and 2, is that Paul says this, and if you want to turn with me in that passage, that we're going to be using this passage and others, is 1 Timothy 3, uh, is this, he said this, here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. And that's what Paul was talking about there, is this ability, this office of what we call the oversight position in the church. And generally an overseer is a person uh, that has the following responsibilities. And this is, this is what part of the word flows from. It's affirmed by an act of governance now, we don't know how uh, New Testament churches had a, a definitive process uh, of finding these uh, godly men in their church, uh, but they developed some process whereby they were able to choose them. And it came from amongst the, the congregation at large because they were noted as being men of character and integrity, and they had the ability to teach. And so somewhere in the governance of the, of the New Testament church, somewhere in the governance of every church, there must be a process whereby we choose uh, these leaders. They have been charged and are responsible. Now, I, I like that word responsible uh, because um, somewhere along the line, uh, responsibility does require a certain degree of authority. You must hand over. You notice in our particular bylaws, the governance documents that we have, that the congregation is specifically charged with certain responsibilities. You are charged with the responsibilities of approving a budget. We just cannot, as elders, set the budget apart from you. The, the congregation is responsible and charged with choosing its senior pastor and also any associate pastor staff that goes along with it. The congregation is charged with, uh, with dismissing said pastor and elders. The congregation is also charged to give the authority to the board in order to have repairs that are set above a certain limit. 
We need to go back to you and say we need to have some, uh, uh, the roof caved in and we need to have it fixed and it's going to cost more than you've authorized us. We need your permission to do that. Well, when you look at a gaping hole in the roof and you figure that this is where the rain is coming in, it probably is something that you probably think is a no-brainer. But there are, so there are some tensions that can result as a result of that. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, the congregation has been given certain responsibilities that only the congregation has. But you must understand that when you say this is what we are responsible for and this is what you've authorized us to do, you must understand that the rest of the stuff, you're really given the responsibility over to this team of men who are leading your church. And you say, we're going to hold you responsible to lead our church with character and integrity. That's what you're saying. We're going to hold you responsible, but we're going to give you no authority. Well, you know what? The problem with that is that sometimes we abuse authority. Sometimes we take too much authority. Sometimes we go off on a tangent and say you have to do because we say you have to do. But you see, one of the missing ingredients with responsibility and authority is accountability. Ooh, that's a bad word, Pastor Bill. Accountability. Accountability. That means that you are going to hold us accountable to do the very thing that you feel God has called us to do for this church. And that's why you have the responsibility not only of putting us in place, but you have the responsibility of taking us out of place. That's your job and your job alone. You see, ladies and gentlemen, any system of governance that allows for responsibility with no authority will fail. But any governance system that allows for responsibility and authority with no accountability will also fail. You need to have accountability. I'm recently uh, going through a, 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 an evaluation program with the staff. Every single one of my direct reports comes as, as sat down and solicited information from other people about their responsibilities, and I've sat down with all but one of those people, and I've sat down and gone over those reports and had the pleasure of telling them what a wonderful job they are doing for this church. You do not realize how freeing up it is for me to allow our staff to do what God has gifted them to do and what you have called them to do, and they do it with such excellence and persistence and competency that it's allowed me to do what God has called me to do without having to be overbearing or involved in their ministries. You are privileged. God has blessed you with a very competent, hardworking staff. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, we would not know that. I knew it intuitively, but we would not know it unless we sat down and did an evaluation. And ladies and gentlemen, there isn't any one of us here that does not have blind spots, blind spots in our ministry, things that we think we're doing well that we just simply are not. And having an evaluation brings that into the light and said, oh, wow, I forgot that. that was, was that mine? I was supposed to do that? I didn't know about that. I'll get right on that, Pastor Bill. See, these are the kind of conversations that we have with evaluation. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
uh, an overseer is an, this is an office that is affirmed by an act of governance that has been charged and has been given the responsibility and subsequently the authority and accountability to understand and to guard those processes and relationships that permit the local community to accomplish its mission. They are or to oversee all that goes on in the church so that the end product is that it accomplishes the mission and we'll talk about what that is in a few minutes. The second word that we're going to talk about is a title that we give. First one was an office, the second one is a title. The title is an elder, and it comes from the word presbyteros, and then you can understand sometimes where we get the word Presbyterian from, is presbyteros. And it comes, it's an, it's an Old Testament title, and I'm going, to, I'm going to turn to it, but it's in Ruth chapter 4. I love this little book of Ruth. And you know the story between Ruth and Boaz, and, and Boaz and, uh, was what is known as a kinsman redeemer. And that was a person who was to take up the estate of a dead man and, uh, and, and his family, and to be able to make sure that the land would stay in the family, he was to redeem that land and that family, and to take it in as his own, so that the next level of generations would have something of which to grab hold of and say they have land in the, in the, in the nation of Israel. Well, Boaz was not only a kinsman redeemer, but he happened to have a little spark in his eye for Ruth. You know, that little twinkle that you get every once in a while that married people sometimes seem to forget is supposed to be in their lives every once in a while. But he said this, but he learned that there was a kinsman redeemer who was closer in in, in heritage and genealogy than he. And so doing the right thing, he wanted to make sure that he gave this guy permission for, for first refusal. Because it was his responsibility to take uh, uh, Naomi and her, her daughter-in-law, daughter Ruth, and, and the land that was ascribed to, uh, to uh, her husband. And so he went and he said, I'm gonna, we need to do the right thing here. So meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. And he waited until the, the kinsman redeemer that was closer in line to him came in, and he said he stopped him. He said, when the kinsman redeemer had, he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit for a while. So he went over and sat down, and Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. You see, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in, the, in the local governance of the community of Israel, they had found these older men who were wise and dignified and had a certain degree of discernment and wisdom about them, and they uh, elevated them to a position of governance so that they would be able to make uh, uh, decisions uh, that were wise and discerning for the people. And so Boaz laid out his claim and said, well, the land is yours. And the man said, hmm, the land is mine. All right, well, I, can, I can handle the land. But he said, you also got to take Naomi and Ruth. And he said, ho, 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 uh, I don't think so. You know what would happen at home if my wife found out that I had another wife that I was supposed to be responsible for? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so Boaz said to the elders, 
He said, announce to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Amalek, uh, Kilian, and Mahan. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. And he said, today you are witnesses that this man has denied his right to be a kinsman redeemer. And the elders said this, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah and together build up the house of Israel. So in other words, what, what Boaz did was he appealed to the elders, these rulers in the local community, to be able to make these wise and discerning decisions. So in other words, uh, elder de describes a title that's been given uh, on the basis of a person's dignity and honor, distinction and preeminence, uh, 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 based on the person's spiritual maturity and his wisdom and discernment. Now the third word that we have that's commonly used in the scriptures is this word shepherd, poimeon, or another word for pastor. And this has Old Testament roots uh, that go way back uh, uh, even before Psalm 23. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, the, 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 the word pastor or shepherd was, was commonly a word that was associated with God because he was the great shepherd of Israel. He was there to, to nurture and to be able to protect the flock and to tend and feed the flock. This is what shepherds do. You know what, and one of the things that, uh, that they oftentimes do when they install a pastor, and I'm going to say this because it's a common thing that, uh, that maybe this church would consider, is that they would give the pastor a shepherd's crook. Now, the shepherd is not a crook. I don't mean to say that. The shepherd's crook. And it's a, a staff that the shepherd would use that he would use to lean on when he's leading the, sh leading the sheep. It's also a staff that every once in a while when a sheep was starting to stray from the flock, they'd take the stick and they'd whack him on the side of the flanks and say, get back in there, and the sheep would be better off be being part of the flock than where he was going. And every once in a while when a sheep would stray off to the flock at nighttime and go over the edge of a precipice and not be able to get himself out, the shepherd would have this hook on the end of the crook. That's the way it sounds. That's the way it is. Uh, and he would be able to look down and grab the sheep by the neck and yank the sheep up. Now that sounds cruel and inhumane, but you realize that the neck is the strongest part of an animal. We had an Afghan hound when Karen and I were first married. And an Afghan hound is either a very stupid dog or a very stubborn dog. And I'm convinced that the, the Afghan hound is a stubborn dog. They had a, a tension span that would last about five seconds, and if they, they ran like the wind, and if you, if you allowed them to, within five minutes, they would be five miles away from your home. Simply because butterfly. Ooh, this, ooh, that, ooh, that, ooh, that. <laughs> and at 30 miles an hour, they can run like the wind, and soon they would be gone. So you never, unless you were in an enclosed area, you never let an Afghan off a leash. And so what we did was we tried to get this dog into obedience school, so we found a man in our community that trained, used to train dogs for Hollywood. He had a Doberman that would scare the daylights out of you, and if he said, kill... That dog would kill. But we were talking with him in his home, within five minutes that dog was sitting on Karen's lap. 
He was just a very well-trained, so we thought we got this guy. This is great. And he suggested get a very long rope, tie it to the dog's leash, and when that dog started to run off and do his own thing, you run off in the opposite direction. <laughs> and I ran off in the opposite direction, and this dog took off in the opposite direction, and because I was running in the, and the dog weighed 60 pounds, it was no small feat. And when, when I was running off, I grabbed this leash, and I yanked it as soon as it got tight, I yanked it as hard as I could, and that dog came back covered with leaves, but he had the biggest grin on his face like I've never seen that dog. This, is, this was fun. I love this. Because he said, you'll never hurt the dog by yanking on his neck. It's the strongest part of his body. And you know what you're going to do? The next time he runs off, he's going to look at you first. Because as soon as he sees you going off in the other direction, he won't run that way. He'll run with you. You see, ladies and gentlemen, a shepherd would need to grab a sheep by its neck sometimes and yank it up out of a precipice, a hole that it got itself in, because he couldn't down and get down and get it. You see, a shepherd's crook is also very emblematic of what a shepherd does. He leads the flock. He leads the flock to nourishment, to water. He, he disciplines the flock. He teaches the flock. The flock begin to trust him because they know that if they stick close to this man, then he will lead them to good things. They will trust it. And Jesus was using, I am the good shepherd. The sheep, my sheep, what? Know my voice. Because then they follow the shepherd. They trust the shepherd. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the functions that a shepherd has. A shepherd describes the function of an office. It's, uh, it's any group of related actions that contribute to the health and normal functioning of that organization. So we have these three words that are used somewhat independently. Look at this. Christ is called the shepherd and overseer of your souls in 1 Peter 2.25. In 1 Peter 5.2, he said, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. And he addresses that, he says, as, as fellow elders, I encourage you to be shepherds of God's flock. In Acts 20, 28, Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders and he was saying, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which, which he bought with his own blood. You see, ladies and gentlemen, these three terms are used all interchangeably when we describe what, an, uh, what the office is and what the title is and who this, what the function of this is supposed to be. So ladies and gentlemen, in short, what does a leader do? A leader directs the affairs of the church. He prays and intercedes for the sick. He ministers the word of God. He delegates tasks that would divert attention from prayer and the word. We have not even begun to, to take a look at the other office that seemed to be within the church, and that is of, of the deacons and deaconesses. But that was what was found in Acts chapter 6 when they found that attending to the, uh, the widows was taking them away from the ministry of the word and prayer. They said, get somebody to take care of that. It's an important task, but it's not our task. And they got somebody to do that. They re refute those who are opposed to sound doctrine. They resolve disputes. They resolve conflicts. They laid on hands to ordain or bless, and they were an example to the congregation. So here are three guidelines that we need to keep in mind. 
Elders are drawn from the local community whose age and character have merited the respect and trust of those whom they will oversee and or shepherd. They have to have character that is respected and trusted. You know, you can like me or not like me. You can love me or not love me. But one of the things that I seek is that you respect me. It's very important that you respect your pastor and trust your pastor. He may never be your best bud. I'm judging from all the Brewer fans we have in here, I'll never be their best bud. <laughs> you don't know what they gave me on Friday. You don't even want to know what they gave me on Friday. It's something you wear in your head that's not got cubs on it. I was embarrassed to tears. Be that as it may, they may never be your best bud. They may never be of somebody that you hold a kind of affection for. But my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, you need to respect them. And you need to respect them for who they are and what you have called them to do. You need to respect them and to trust them. They function as a team. Elders function as a team. Nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament do we see elders functioning individually. We see them always functioning in, the, in, a, in essence as a plurality of elders. Because you know what, ladies and gentlemen, there's strength in the fact that one person is going to be able to uh, 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 balance out another. Different perspectives are, are very important for us. We need to have that. Even though there may be one person or two people or even three on the team that are very gifted in a particular thing. I was thinking this morning of having Archie McKinney on the elder team. What a wealth of information and application of God's word is in this man. What he brings to us. Jim Tanner is an elder in our team that has been many, many years of service with Campus Crusade for Christ. Other people bring other aspects of their work that, that is a leadership aspect uh, that bring that all together. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen, there's, they generally allow the senior pastor or any pastoral staff to be members of their board because they're gifted and skilled and are full-time ministers of the word. But it doesn't mean that one is apart from or separate from or higher than the other. They are all equal in terms of their ability to lead and serve the church. And number three, this is most important, and I've highlighted it, underlined it, italicized it, I don't know how else, other than making a huge font. Elders are called to guard the processes that make for a healthy, spiritually growing, local expression of the body of Christ. That's what the elders are responsible to do. That's what you call them to do, that's what you authorize them to do, and that's what you're going to hold them accountable to do the healthy, spiritually growing local expression of the body of Christ. But it is not their agenda that they need to follow. Here's what they need to do. The chief shepherd, I love this expression, and you know what, ladies and gentlemen, very early in my pastoral uh, ministry, this verse hit me. It hit me. And it's in 1 Peter, and it goes like this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder 
a witness of Christ's sufferings and the one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. Be shepherds of God's flock. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? There's far too many people who interpret that as be shepherds of your flock. It is not your flock. It's God's flock. And you are being held responsible by the chief shepherd and how you shepherd his flock. And ladies and gentlemen, as soon as an elder or a pastor begins to realize this, there is a lot less of me and a lot more of him in the ministry. Be shepherds of God's flock, tending to them because they are under your care, serving as overseers. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God has given us our, our walking papers. God has said, all authority is in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and baptize. Make disciples of all people. In the name of the Father, and I have commanded you, and I will surely be with you always. This is the great commission. And he does so with the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and your neighbor as yourself. This is the great commandment. We are to love one another. This is what the great witness. The great witness is this, that the rest of the world will see that uh, you are in unity just as the Father and I are united. This is the great testimony. What a devastating effect it is to see people say, you have one Bible and you have so many different ways that the people in this earth have interpreted it that you have a so many fractions and denominations and divisions within the, the Christian church. How could that be a, a, a positive influence in the community? How can, a, how can a congregation who is fractionalized and marginalized and separated and divisive, bitter, resentful, be a positive influence in the community when the very testimony that God has called us to do is ruptured and fractured from within? You see, ladies and gentlemen, the Great Commission needs to be accompanied by the Great Commandment with the Great Testimony, and it needs to be empowered by the Great Counselor. The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify me as you have done from the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, a church needs to be infused with the mission of God. It also be, needs to be marked by the, 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 the commandment of God and the witness of God, but it needs to be empowered by the, 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 the Holy Spirit of God. You know, there are so many churches around today that are run like well-oiled businesses. I remember a church that was celebrating out in California just this past couple of months ago, celebrating a, an anniversary. So what they did was they went out and they rented the Los, Los Angeles Coliseum and for their musical guests, they had the Jonas Brothers. And I thought to myself and I said, well, I'm glad to see that the Jonas Brothers are coming to church. But I wonder how many people were in the Los Angeles Coliseum to glorify and worship God for the great things he had done in that church. A well-oiled machine. We run it like a business, like a corporation. I love Apple computers, but ladies and gentlemen, let us never, ever, ever run our church like Apple. We have a dictator the top, telling the rest of the company what and how to do. 
Never run it like that. There always needs to be built into whatever it is that we do. There needs to be room for prayer to go down on our knees and petition God to say, Lord, we need you to make our efforts fruitful so that when we come back here after our event or our uh, process, whatever it happens to be, that we don't pat ourselves on the back, we pat God on the back. We need to be prayerful. We need to beg God for a relation of his Holy Spirit so that our ministries are empowered by the, by the power of God. And only then will we see the fruit that God has for us to labor on. Last thing. What is an elder to do? Here's what an elder is to do. We talked about who he's to be. Now we're talking about what he must do. Elders are to serve and lead the church so that the church is a contemporary, creative expression of the Great Commission, living out the Great Commandment, giving evidence of the Great Testimony, and empowered and led by the Great Counselor. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what a leader is to do. Next Sunday, you will affirm men to go out and do this. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, Lord, you have given us a, a, a mighty powerful job description. And shame on us, Father, when we think we can do this in our own effort. Lord, who can, who can stand up to the scrutiny of your, your holiness flashlight as it peers into our very hearts and our lives? Lord, who can, who can stand up to the job description of being an overseer an elder, and a shepherd. Oh, gracious Father, that's why it takes a team. And we pray, Father, that as you direct and lead this congregation, they will choose men uh, that, are, um, that uh, exhibit the character that you would have called them to, and that, Father, that you would empower them by your Spirit to lead us and serve us in allowing them to be able to, to point us in a direction that is a creative and contemporary expression of the Great Commission so that we are modeling the Great Commandment and the Great Testimony. Oh, Heavenly Father, that we would certainly be empowered by your Great Counselor. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek the leaders in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.